Good morning, church. As we go to God's word, let's pray once more and ask Lord's help to understand his word. Pray with me. Father in heaven, as we turn now to seek wisdom from your word, Lord, we ask by the power of your spirit that you would continue to do a work in our hearts. We are a people in need of pruning. Father, humble and sanctify us by your word, for your word is truth. Lord, help us to pay attention. Lord, remove distractions so that we might hear and apply your word rightly. For our good, and most supremely, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week, Pastor Johnny began his sermon by talking about preppers and the zombie apocalypse. So if you missed that, you might want to go check it out. It's pretty amazing. And how this obsession uh, with the end of the world leads people to do crazy things and to make uh, outlandish purchases of items that they'll probably never use. Although comical, his point was that as Christians, we too should be a people who are getting ready for the end. More specifically and more biblically, uh, ready for Christ's return. And how we do so should be informed by the scriptures. Well, in our passage for this morning, we learn even more about the return of the king. Uh, We learn some specifics. So if last week was an exhortation to to get ready, uh, this week is an explanation of what exactly we, God's people, are are getting ready for. Uh, Judgment day. So a little context before we read our passage for this morning. This is the last and final teaching before Jesus takes his final Passover meal, uh, before he's betrayed, before he's falsely accused and then hung on a cross to die. So today, we are considering Jesus' last lesson to his disciples. You know, he could have taught the disciples anything for this last lesson, but he chose specifically and intentionally to teach them about Judgment Day. Jesus wanted them and us to understand that all that they would go on to do, everything, needed to be done in light of the last day. So with that in mind, that context in mind, let's read Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 to 46. This can be found on page 831 in the Pew Bibles, page 831 in the Pew Bibles. As is always the case, if you do not have your own copy of God's Word, uh, feel free to take that one as a gift from us to you. Uh, We want nothing more than for you to be able to read God's Word for yourself. So again, Matthew 25, starting in verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared before you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry 
and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Uh, then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me, a naked, and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they, will, they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? And then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Our church family, we must pay attention to this final lesson. Because in it, we find both a warning and an encouragement. And this will serve as our main idea, this warning and this encouragement, that only the merciful will inherit the kingdom of God. Only the merciful will inherit the kingdom of God. And we'll see this kingdom truth by looking at the fate of two different groups, the fate of the righteous and the fate of the wicked. These will serve as our two points for this morning. So point number one, the fate of the righteous. Before we kind of dive all the way into this, I want you to notice the structure of this parable. Verses 31 to 33 are a summary, a summary of what will take place on Judgment Day. Verses 34 to 46 are some specifics, the particulars when it comes to the fate of the righteous and the fate of the wicked. And these two groups... They, they mirror one another in how Jesus explains them. It, it always starts with the result, and then he gives the explanation following the result. So, unlike most of the parables that we have been walking through, this does not begin with the words, the kingdom of heaven is like. So if you've been walking with us through these parables through Matthew, almost every single one begins with the kingdom of heaven is like. Nonetheless, Jesus is still using this parable to teach his disciples and us something about the kingdom. And in this case, who will and won't inherit the kingdom is closely tied to how we view God and how we treat God's people. Who will and won't inherit the kingdom is closely tied to how we view God and how we treat God's people. So Jesus begins by referring to himself as the Son of Man, a reference used several times throughout Matthew 24 and 25, but it goes way further back than that. Daniel 7 is where we see the origins of this title. Uh, the prophet Daniel has a vision in which he sees one like a Son of Man who is presented before the Ancient of Days. Daniel's vision is pointing forward to this coming Messiah. So for Jesus to use this reference points to the truth that indeed he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. All the promises of the Old Testament find their yes and amen in him. And then in the remainder of 31 through 33, we learn even more about the role that Jesus will play on Judgment Day. 
I think there's a few titles that stand out. The first one we see here is this idea of Jesus as king. Jesus as king. When the Son of Man comes in glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. Oh, friends, when Jesus returns, it will be clear that he is the king of kings. Although during his earthly life he was lowly and afflicted and acquainted with grief, during his return he will come in glory. His majesty will be evident to all. His power, it will be undeniable, and he won't be alone. As we see there in the text, he will be coming with all the angels. So the Isaiah 6 angels that we see in Isaiah's vision, the the cherubim, and then the same angels that we see that terrify the shepherds uh, in delivering the good news of, of Jesus, those angels plus all of the hosts of heaven will be accompanying Jesus during his return as he sits on his glorious throne. Uh, this image of, of sitting on his glorious throne uh, is meant to portray the idea that he indeed has all authority in heaven and on earth. He sits in power as his subjects stand in front of him. So we see him as king, but we also see Jesus here as judge. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another. Like a, a judge in a courtroom, all those who will be on trial will stand before him as he sits. The nations that we see here, not to be confused with a particular ethnic group, the nations is meant to represent all people. All people will stand before God as judge, rich or poor, famous or infamous, we will all stand before God's judgment seat. Hebrews 9, 27. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. And to the praise of his glorious grace, Christ will judge justly. I wonder how your life would look different if you meditated on the truth more often that you will stand before God as judge? What would you change about your life? What would you do more often? What would you cut out of your life? Friends, Christ will judge every word, every deed, every tweet. Christ will judge it all. May we be a people who who daily remember this sobering truth. So we see Christ as king, We see Christ as judge. A third thing that I think rises out of these first few verses is that we see Christ as shepherd. As a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. So in first century Israel, it would have been a very common practice for a shepherd to be watching over both sheep and goats. And as they grazed on the grass, they would inevitably intermingle with one another. But when the evening came, and the temperatures dropped, the shepherd would need to to separate these two groups. The sheep with wool would be equipped to withstand any of the colder temperatures, whereas the goats who don't have that wool would need to be uh, brought into a warm shelter by the shepherd so they can make it through the night. Thus the practice of separating sheep and goats. Friends, Jesus is like a shepherd in that he will be the one who is doing the separating. But as we'll see very clearly later on in our passage, this separation, it it wasn't for the purposes of warmth. Uh, To be 100% clear, this separation that we see taking place in our passage for this morning is itself judgment. Just like last week, 
in the parable of the ten virgins, we have two groups, sheep and goats. Those on the right, those on the left, the righteous and the wicked. On Judgment Day, there will only be two destinations. When we die, or when Jesus comes back, whichever happens first, all of us will be divided into one of two groups. You will either be found innocent or you will be found guilty. You know, contrary to official Roman Catholic doctrine, there is no such thing as purgatory. There is no second chances uh, when the trumpet sounds. Uh, There is no waiting room when it comes to heaven. When this life ends, a verdict will be rendered, and the lives that we lived will serve as evidence examined by this holy judge. So brothers and sisters, are you living this day in light of that day? The decisions you make, the places you go, the things you read, who you choose to spend your time with, what do they say about your view of eternity? Christian, how you live your life matters. To claim to have been saved by grace means you live a life of showing grace. To say you have been forgiven by Christ means your life is marked by forgiving others. To say you have received mercy inevitably means that you extend mercy. Oh, friends, to be a Christian is to rejoice daily in the truth that God in Christ has been merciful to you. He has not given you what your sins deserve. He took the crown of thorns so that you could have the crown of glory. He took your wickedness so that you could have his righteousness. He took the wrath so that you could have the reward. In our place, condemned he stood. Oh, friends, a Christian is someone who has been shown mercy and therefore extends mercy. And we see this in verses 34 to 36. Mercy shown. Mercy shown. I'm going to read those verses to us once more, starting in verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared before you, for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Oh, friends, this is the fate of the righteous. Uh, Jesus is establishing for us a clear connection between how we live and what we believe. The righteous live in a particular way because we believe a particular truth. But before we're told how they live, we're told what they receive. The king, he he bids the righteous to come. So for those who are in Christ, we are welcomed into the presence of the king. Born enemies, we are now friends. Uh, Once far off, we are now welcomed in. As the old hymn says, uh, Come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus, ready, stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. To be in Christ is to have been told, Come. Uh, God welcomes the righteous. God welcomes the blessed. And to be blessed is to be in Christ, to have been given the gifts of faith and repentance, to believe in the gospel is to have been received every spiritual blessing. 
And this blessing, it originates outside of us. Along with all good things that we receive from the Lord, it is grace. And the glorious truth is that if God has given it, then no one can take it away. The kingdom of heaven, those who believe the gospel, the blessed, will dwell in God's place and under God's rule, just like Adam and Eve did before the fall in the garden. A restored relationship. But there's something critical for us to understand here, and that is that the kingdom was not prepared as a response to the good works that we've done, but was prepared, as the text says, for you from the foundation of the world. Uh, Church family, this is an inheritance secured by Christ before you were ever born, which proves that this inheritance is not based on any actions that we could take. It's not based on our righteousness. Verses 35 and 36 are evidence of blessing rather than basis of blessing. Uh, Not the cause of salvation, but the result of salvation. We show mercy because we've been shown mercy. Uh, Church family, rest. Rest in this blessed assurance. If you are in Christ, the kingdom of heaven is yours. The elect will live for eternity. Our reward is secure in heaven. And this has always been God's plan. He is not in heaven hoping that we make the right decisions and and get to the right outcomes. No. He sent Christ who has made all of the right decisions and secured our heavenly outcome. This is God leaving us the sheep, no doubt, that heaven is ours. And if heaven is truly ours, then we must live like that's the case, which is what we see next. Verses 35 and 36 are a list of of different acts of mercy. Although verse 35 begins with the word for, don't be confused. What follows, it only supports the blessing given by God, right? So the gospel of grace, it still stands. This is not a works-based passage for us. The very last act of of this list, I think, captures the setting of these acts of mercy best. I was in prison and you came to me. In other words, you, you visited me. You, you ministered to me. Now, imagine for a moment what a first century prison would have looked like, how it would have operated. Oh, very different from a modern day prison. There was no recreation time. There was no TV time. You didn't get change of clothes. Uh, you didn't have three square meals each day. No, no, no. A first century uh, prison in Israel uh, would have meant that you, to, to survive, you would have needed the help from those from the outside. You would have needed to have been shown mercy from those on the outside. Uh, notice the first person singular pronoun in each of these acts of mercy. I, I, I. It's repeated over and over again. Uh, the one who received mercy is the king. And as we know in this parable, the king is Jesus. So so Jesus is saying that these acts of mercy were done to him. But where in the Gospels do we see Jesus in need of food, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or or in need of a visit, or in prison? Well, we don't. So, So what is the heavenly meaning behind this earthly part of the parable? Well, Jesus is identifying with someone 
in need of mercy. But the question still stands, who? Well, we find out in verse 40, but before we get there, let's look at verses 37 to 39. I'll read them for us once more. 37 to 39. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? You know, what comes next in our passage is very, very interesting. The righteous seem to be unaware of when exactly they carried out these acts of mercy for the king. You know, Jesus includes this detail to prove even further that their kindness to the needy, it was not in order to gain a reward. It wasn't hypocrisy. Instead, it was a response to what Christ had already done for them and in them, as shown through their unawareness. Uh, These were earnest and genuine acts of mercy done to meet the needs of fellow brothers and sisters. Uh, Church family, I think that this happens even here at Oakhurst. Uh, Take volunteering in childcare, for example. Do you realize that watching those little ones for 90 minutes or so uh, allows for marriages to be built up under the preached word of God? It's an act of mercy to take care of the children of a married couple here at our church so that the married couple can hear God's word undistracted. Or or more acutely, uh, maybe a struggling marriage. Uh, The words of the songs that we sing, the the prayers that we pray, the scripture that's read, it can all be used by the Spirit to, to renew and revive a struggling marriage. So those who volunteer in childcare, you may not be fully aware, unless you yourself are a parent, but to serve in this capacity, it's an act of mercy toward the, par- toward the parents of this church. So from all of the parents here, uh, thank you. Thank you for serving in children's ministry. But church family, understanding what comes next, so verse 40, is the difference between applying Jesus' words in context or out of context. And as any good Bible reader knows, context is king. The king responds to the confusion of those on the right with something potentially even more confusing. He identifies himself with the least of these, those in need of mercy. But the question still stands, who exactly are those in need of mercy? Verse 40, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. And the king's response begins with the, with the word truly. Or as good old King James would say, verily. This is Jesus' way of of underscoring what comes next. With full sincerity, I tell you the truth. When you did these acts of kindness to the least of these, you did them to me. This is a, a critical point to understand. Jesus is specifically talking about merciful acts to fellow Christians. That's, that's, the, that's the, uh, the aim of this, this parable. He's specifically talking about merciful acts to fellow Christians. You know, Matthew uses the word brothers all throughout the gospel. And each time, he, he means one of two things. He means a literal blood relative brother, or he means a fellow believer, a fellow disciple of Christ. And it's pretty clear in our text, we're not talking about blood relatives. So he's talking right now about fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Don't get me wrong, you know, general acts of kindness, 
humanitarian aid, the Bible commends that as well, right? You can look at the parable of, of the Good Samaritan for an example of that. But here, we have something more specific, and dare I say, maybe even more difficult. Jesus is identifying himself with the least among us, among the family of Christians, among the church. The least of these, uh, those among us who are struggling, uh, those among us who are going through hardship. You know, depending on the season, any one of us could be described as the least of these. Those who are struggling emotionally, physically, uh, mentally, those among us who are unable for one reason or another to, to meet practical needs. As God's people, we should be especially attuned to the needs of those among our number who are experiencing hardship. As God's people, we should be especially attuned to the needs of, of those among our number who are experiencing hardship. Uh, consider our church covenant, for example, that we've made with one another. Our second commitment on the list in our church covenant says, we will walk together in Christian love, exercising an affectionate care for and watchfulness over each other. Affectionate care. Uh, friends, affectionate care, it, it's practical love. It's real acts of mercy that meet real needs. It's visiting the sick. It's making the baby meal. It's helping load the moving truck. It's babysitting. It's signing up to help mow the purpose's lawn while Brian recovers from his hip surgery. The point is that we have covenanted we have promised to be looking out for the least of these in this church. So then my question for you is, are you doing that? Do you know who among you is actually in need? Are you plugged in and involved enough to actually know who might be in need? You know, if not, consider reaching out to a pastor to find out. Or you could reach out to Roy and Lisa Britton. The, deacons, the deacon and deaconess of, of member care. Roy, if you two, Roy and Lisa, could you raise your hand for a second? That's who I'm talking about right there, just in case you don't know who I'm talking about. Uh, you could basically say that Matthew 25, verse 40, is their area of expertise right now. They are regularly finding and spreading the word about ways in which we could serve those uh, in, among our number who are in need. Another way that we do this here in our church is the Benevolence Fund. So this is money set aside in our church budget for the express purpose of helping those who have come across a sudden financial straits. So there are practical ways, church family, in which we can show mercy to one another. Come, please do talk to a pastor about ways in which you could possibly do that. Friends, the king of kings so evidently, so closely identifies with the lowliest among us that when we are doing good to that person, it's the same as doing good to him. And y'all, this is not a new concept in the New Testament. Consider two other places in Scripture where we see this taking place. Matthew 10, verses 40 to 42. Jesus is giving instructions to his disciples before he sends them out to go and do ministry. And he says to them, whoever receives you, receives me. Uh, meaning as they go out, whomever welcomes the disciples, they are welcoming Jesus. Or, or another example maybe one that comes to mind immediately, Acts chapter 9, uh, Saul's conversion. After being knocked off his horse and blinded by the resurrected Jesus, uh, Jesus asks Saul, 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 why are you persecuting me? 
who exactly was Saul persecuting? He was persecuting the church. He was persecuting Christians. Christ so closely identifies with the church that if to come after the church is to come after him. Oh, the church family, the creator of heaven and earth, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, not only is mindful of us, but he identifies with us. There's so much comfort in this truth. We serve a Savior who, who knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust, and yet he calls himself Emmanuel, God with us. He is with us in our struggles. He is with us in our trials. He is with us in our lowest moments, and he will never, he will never leave us nor forsake us. I'd like us to consider one other implication of verse 40. And as we do so uh, and do life with one another, I trust that there are also good works that we do to one another that maybe get forgotten or we are unaware of, similar to the righteous here in our passage. There are times where we, we bless someone and maybe we don't realize it. So, beloved, I want you to know that God sees. God sees, and he will reward the good deeds, those in which we are aware of and those of which we are unaware of. So, until that heavenly reward comes, friends, be quick to point out evidences of grace in one another's lives. If a member has blessed you in a particular way and, you, and they aren't aware of it, go tell them, encourage them. This is just another way to spur one another on in love and good deeds. This is the fate of the righteous. But what about those who withhold mercy? This brings us to point number two, the fate of the wicked, the fate of the wicked. In Matthew 7, uh, during the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus warns his listeners of false prophets. And as if to anticipate the question, well, Jesus, how exactly do we spot a false prophet? He says, you will recognize them by their fruits. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Uh, this line of thinking that Jesus presents in his Sermon on the Mount is not exclusively reserved for false prophets. But I would say it goes even further. You can apply the same logic to all people. You will recognize a Christian by their actions. How we live is evidence of what we believe. Not perfectly, but watch our lives long enough, and they should give evidence, credence, that we have been forgiven a debt that we could never repay. And the inverse is also true. Watch the life of an unbeliever long enough, and they too will bear fruit. The works of the flesh, a life of unrepentant sin, with, with no regard for God, never seeking his forgiveness, a life that has not submitted to God and the gospel. So in the second half of our passage, we see the spiritual reality that those who withhold mercy to God's people are those who have not received gospel mercy. Those who withhold mercy to God's people are those who have not received gospel mercy. After all, how can a person give that which they've never received? Verses 41 to 43 for us once again. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, 
into the eternal fire prepared for the devils and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. You know, if the first half of our passage was mercy shown and mercy received, uh, this half is, is mercy withheld and therefore mercy denied. Those on the left did not give food or drink. They did not welcome or clothe or visit the sick in prison. And the result of the lack of mercy, this lack of mercy, it leads to their rejection by the king. Uh, look at the key words in the king's response, starting with the word depart. Depart. Uh, the unmerciful are cast away unable to be in the presence of the king. They, they continue to remain as his enemies. Uh, the word cursed, instead of being called blessed, those who receive and believe the gospel, they are called cursed as those who have rejected this good news, and they remain in their rebellion and sin. Uh, eternal fire. The righteous will receive eternal life, life forever with God. The cursed are thrown into the eternal fire. Uh, similar in that they both go on forever, but a major difference in that those who are cursed will forever suffer the wrath of God. The last word I want to draw your attention to is the word prepared. Prepared. Uh, instead of the assurance of a kingdom prepared before the foundation of the world, uh, those on the left experience an eternal fire that was originally prepared for Satan and his demons. Think about that for a moment. The original purpose of hell uh, was for Satan and his demons, because as we see in Genesis 1 and 2, there were no other rebels to the king. But when Adam and Eve disobeyed and, and sin entered into the world, hell began to serve another purpose as punishment for those who continue in their rebellion. This is the fate of the cursed, those who do not extend mercy to the least of these, my brothers. Uh, like the sheep, the goats also respond to their judgment with surprise. And the Lord, again, responds with identifying with his people. Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or strange or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these. You did not do it to me. Mercy denied. Based on the parallelism that this pass, in this passage, we see clearly that the group on the left had done no merciful acts to God's people. To, play, to say it plainly, their bad roots produced bad fruit. Again, we see just how closely Jesus identifies with his people. To neglect his people is to neglect him. And to neglect him is to neglect the merciful gift of salvation, therefore remaining in sin. Thus they receive their due punishment. Uh, church family, to be clear, I, I think this passage has both kind of a primary audience and a secondary audience. Uh, primarily, the fate of the cursed I think it serves as a warning to those inside the church, a warning to those inside the church, those who say that they have received mercy from God in Christ, 
yet refuse to extend that mercy to other brothers and sisters in the church. They, they give evidence that they have not actually truly received this gospel mercy for themselves. To this person, on the day of judgment, they will be met with the words, depart. And then secondarily, I think this passage serves as a warning to, to non-believers, those outside of the fellowship of the church. So if you're here this morning and you have, have not trusted in Christ for salvation, I want you to hear me clearly. Uh, there is a particular kind of mercy uh, that God expects to be extended to his people that simply cannot be extended by those who have not repented of their sins and turned to him in faith. And if you persist in this rebellion toward this loving king, uh, your fate will be the same as a false professor, eternal fire uh, prepared for the devil and his angels. Oh, but friend, this God that we've been talking about all morning, he is also gracious. He is also merciful. And even now, he extends the gospel of grace and mercy to you. If you would but turn from your sins and trust in Christ today. You can receive this eternal life that we're talking about right now, today, if you trust in Jesus. The non-believer and the false professor have something in common. They have not received the gospel. They have not seen their need of a savior and therefore cannot do good to the least of these, the brothers. I think a good passage that kind of uh, undergirds what we're talking about this morning is Hebrews 11.6. Hebrews 11.6, which says, Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Those on the left, they lack the faith necessary to please God. God. What becomes clear as you compare these two groups is that Jesus is interested in a righteousness that comes from a changed heart. And those who are not merciful, they give evidence of an unchanged heart. Those who are not merciful, they find themselves as the king's enemies. Oakhurst Baptist Church, we must examine ourselves. We would do well to take heed of verses 44 and 45, and ask ourselves regularly, am I showing mercy to fellow members of this church? And if ever we find ourselves answering the question with a no, I think our first step needs to be to remember the gospel. Uh, remember the gospel. Remember how the Lord, in his kindness, spared you from the punishment your sins deserve. How he extended mercy to you in Christ a mercy that you did not deserve, nor a mercy that you could ever earn. And then second, I would encourage you to confess this sin to others. Ask a brother or sister to help you examine your heart and try to figure out why you lack the compassion required to carry out these acts of kindness toward the least of us. Our, our, our final verse for this morning is a summary of the entire parable. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Uh, the fate of those who persist in sin is eternal punishment, torment, unquenchable agony, weeping and gnashing of teeth, forever separated from the goodness of God the Father. And as rebels toward a good and loving king, they will receive that which their sins deserve. 
in rejecting those for whom Christ died, that is the same as rejecting Christ himself. Their verdict before this holy judge will be guilty. Oh, but the righteous, those who have seen their need for mercy and turn to Jesus in repentance and faith, they will find forgiveness of sin and experience eternal life, a life of, of limitless joy and everlasting satisfaction, not because of anything that we have done, but because of the perfect life and the sacrificial death and the glorious resurrection of the God-man, Jesus Christ. Uh, church family, a judgment day is drawing nigh. Eternity is closer than we realize. May we be a people who are rich in mercy toward one another because God in Christ has been rich in mercy toward us. Amen. Amen. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Let's pray. Lord God, we give you all praise and all glory for extending your mercy to a sinful people like us. You did not have to show us mercy, but out of your abundant grace, you sent your only son, Jesus the Christ, to die for sinners. Father, by your spirit, cause us to be a people who seek to be merciful to one another. Uh, be glorified in our merciful acts toward one another. In Jesus' name, amen.